0: Welcome back to the Muzzle Blast Podcast, the official podcast of the National Muzzleloading Loading Rifle Association. This week we're doing a little bit of a feed drop. I was just on the Backcountry Rookies podcast as a part of their Muzzleloader March series, talking about the history of muzzleloaders from the beginning, kind of with the invention of gunpowder, up into and through modern times and to where we are now. It's a really neat conversation. Chad and I went back and forth quite a bit on just the neatness of muzzleloaders, their history, and the technology that we all have thanks to the industry that they were built up to supply. I've cut up the episode just a little bit to give you some of the highlights. If you want to hear the full episode, which I really think you should, give it a try and really catch kind of this whole abridged version of muzzleloading history, head over to the Backcountry Rookies podcast. We'll have a link down in the show notes below, as well as at NMLRA.org.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Backcountry Rookies podcast. I'm your host, Chad Riker, and as promised, this is Muzzleloader March. So all things muzzleloader, we're talking about all kinds of good stuff. Today, I've got Ethan Yazel. Did I say that right? Did I mess that?
0: Yeah, you got that right. Yep.
1: Okay. Today, I've got Ethan Yazel on and he is with the National Muzzle Loading Rifle Association. And I thought Ethan was going to be the perfect guy. He is the perfect guy to bring on here. And I wanted to talk about the history of muzzleloading. Um, oftentimes in today's world, we'll go into the Cabela's or the sportsman's warehouse or the, whatever, pick your, pick your shop. And we see all these great muzzleloaders on the, on the shelves, but there's so much behind them. Right. And Ethan is the guy that's going to talk about all of that. How do we get to where we're at today in 2021, where we can just go buy these phenomenal, almost rifle, like muzzleloaders. From the point where gunpowder was introduced, I don't know any of that history. This is certainly not my area of expertise, so I brought the expert on. Ethan, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. This is really exciting.
1: I'd like to jump into the history of muzzleloaders yeah. now. If you, if you, uh, if you're ready for that, yeah. Let me take a little sip here.
0: Yeah. So I'm not sure the exact date, and I don't know if we even have one, but somewhere in early time, the Chinese invented black powder. And we all kind of, I think a history class touches on that some because it was such a dynamic technological revolution. I mean, it kind of started out as fireworks, but then they quickly figured out that they could develop basically tubes with a solid end and turn... The black powder into propellant for a cannon or a mortar like we would think of today and you can still see basically that same design uh, in a lot of state houses and museums because that was used up into and through the civil war here Um, so that design started with the chinese and with their black powder which they used cast tubes made of brass or iron and then just loaded them through the muzzle just like you would see in kind of our contemporary mortars and that was really the first of the muzzle loading industry, so to speak. And they were just like a cannon, like you think of when you think of a cannon, they were ignited with a wicker fuse, but an industry and kind of the minds of people started working on speeding that up to make it more accurate and more on demand like we do with anything. So in the In the 1400s, you start to see the development of the matchlock. And I I really encourage anybody interested in this history to look up some of the uh, photos and the drawings of these early locks. Because you can think of a modern rifle and you can kind of imagine it. But if you haven't seen or you aren't familiar with these early technologies, they're really neat. And to think of these people figuring them out by windows and candlelight without any modern machinery is really fascinating to me so the modern match or the matchlock was developed in the early 1400s and this created a mechanical element to go with the fuse so the matchlock holds a fuse in kind of a a little arm on the side of your gun and when you pull the trigger it drops that fuse into a pan primed with a little bit of black powder and that priming pan is what we refer to that as then uh, that spark travels into the barrel through a, a hole in the side of the barrel and you're, we call that a touch hole and that lights off the main charge in your barrel. So this is where we started to see the first concepts of a muzzle loading rifle in use, something that an individual person could carry. And then towards the late 1800s, um, the matchlocks started to change a little bit in Germany I think this was, I think the 1460s or so, a group of German gunsmiths figured out how to rifle a barrel. So every barrel until the mid to late 1400s was smooth, like we think of a a shotgun. So we we refer to those as smooth bores. So the bore of of the barrel's smooth. But they figured out, the Germans figured out how to rifle these barrels and start getting that twist in the barrel so your projectile could be more accurate over greater distances. And this is where we start to see real German industry dominance. I mean, and you see that all through history, but they started to figure out this barrel rifling and that just kind of set the spark for them on figuring out accuracy and just the mechanics of shooting. The Germans are famous for their Jaeger rifles, which were their just really beautifully made and really technically exquisite muzzleloading hunting rifles that uh, if you're interested in, in the history of hunting, you need to check out the Jaeger rifles. They're beautifully designed, and the artwork that goes on them and goes with them is just is just fascinating.
1: <laughs> and that's the translation, right? Jaeger is hunter.
0: Yes. that's Yeah. Jaeger is the hunter. Yeah.
1: So yeah. that rifle was created, or that muzzleloader was created for hunting purposes, for hunting. not a military. Yep. None of that stuff, hunting.
0: At this time, as far as I know, uh, and a historian out there can probably correct me, but at this time, and even up until our Revolutionary War and our Civil War, the military firearms were all smoothboards. It was a lot faster and a lot cheaper to make them smooth. And when you think about war and battle at the time, you were dealing with these large battlefields with volley fire and everything. They weren't real concerned about individual accuracy, especially at scale, up until our revolutionary war is where that started to really play in our favor okay yeah good point so in the 1500s then you have the wheel lock being developed and we've at this point we've totally gotten rid of the fuse and we're starting to use metal and iron to create a spark like you would um to light a fire with your flint and your striker so the wheel lock is similar to the match lock where you have an arm that has um Well, here, I'll read my notes. That'll probably be, it'll probably be better that way. Um, When the trigger is pulled, a coil spring turns a rough edged steel wheel against a piece of iron pyrite, creating sparks to ignite the priming pan and then the main charge. So if you can look at a picture of a matchlock, you're just kind of replacing the outer face of the matchlock with a new technology. You still have the arm dropping and that iron pyrite hits that wheel, lights your priming pan and then lights your main charge.
1: Kind of like a fire starter or something like that almost. Yes, it's throwing yes. a spark. It's hitting that it – prop- propellant or that whatever is flammable and then, or yeah. that powder at that point.
0: Okay. Exactly. You're just using that as a, in small scale. And if you read some of the journals and things of the hunters and the, the people, the folks in the military at this time, there were times where they could light fires with their equipment because it's the same thing. I think most of the time they would have pulled out their, their flint and steel and done it that way, because at that time that was a skill that you just had to have. Everybody knew how to do it, but you could still start a fire with these ignition Technologies to keep yourself warm. So in the in the 1600s, then you have the development of the flintlock, which is one of the things that people really think about when they see a muzzleloader, where you have. The, what we refer to as the hammer or the cock, holds a flint, and it strikes against a hardened piece of iron or steel called the frizzen, and that captures that spark, drops it into your priming pan, and then ignites your charge. And these were the things that, when you think of kind of the American Revolution and the American long rifle, this is the ignition system that we're using at this time. And to kind of tie into the German influence of the history of it, the Americans when we started developing the American long rifle in Virginia, Pennsylvania, kind of along the East coast there, we were heavily influenced by those German builders because many of the builders, especially early on in America, were German and they had trained under those German masters. So they brought that over. And when you look at Early long rifles, you really see that German influence. A lot of times, the triggers are the same, where you have a set trigger like the traditional Jaegers did to get that real fine trigger pull, and you had a nice comb. I mean, everything about the American long rifle to me makes it just the perfect gun. I I can pick up any modern rifle, and it's not going to be as comfortable as an American long rifle is, and they just got that really down i'm a real fanboy of the american long rifle in that i could shoot a long rifle all day every day and it's just so comfortable the just the shape of everything really works well we took that german influence and really started to change it up because we had some longer distances and we were striving to make them even more accurate we started to create longer rifled barrels similar to the germans but we made them longer I mean, you talk, You see some original rifles were nearly six feet long, and that's a really long rifle, especially compared to today. Uh, and that just gave everybody using them the accuracy and the dependability they needed to hunt and survive on the frontier. I mean, like we carry our phones, I think most of us do all day, every day. These guys and the men and women there were carrying their rifles. I mean, it was, they lived and died by these and they, they knew the ins and outs of them. Uh, so up until the 1800s, the mechanism needed to ignite the priming powder, or they needed the priming powder to ignite the main charge. But once you get into the early 1800s, as we start developing some industrial might, as we think of kind of in a modern sense, the percussion lock was developed and then which required the percussion cap. And that was, it took a while, I think the, the 1820s, 1810s, 1820s, and when you started to see that developed, but it wasn't widely adopted until the 1840s. So if you've seen Jeremiah Johnson or the Mountain Men movie, the traditional Hawken is kind of the the rifle that everybody pictures for that time. That's your traditional percussion or cap lock muzzleloader. So the You still have a hammer like you do on a flintlock, but now that hammer strikes that cap, which is placed onto a nipple and a drum, which is attached to the barrel. So now the ignition of your main charge is all internal to the mechanism of the muzzleloader. You don't have to worry about your pan getting wet or your flint not striking. As long as you have a good cap and your barrel's dry, your charge is going to go off. And it makes it a lot more reliable, um, but you are now relying on the ability to get those caps. So it's kind of a a nod to the growing settlement of the United States, transitioning from uh, a wild frontier to kind of a colonized space. When you, especially as you get into kind of the fur trade in the Rocky Mountain era,
1: that's cool. I mean, that, that, I think that's really really cool.
0: I think if you're interested in history or the history of hunting muzzleloaders are a, a neat niche to get into because it's so tied to history and the industry and the engineering of it it's kind of a it's a great intersection for all of it that makes it really interesting for me to hear the rest of this conversation, I think the whole thing was just about 40 minutes long. you want going to head over to the Backcountry Rookies podcast. They're part of the Sportsman's Nation podcast network. In the show notes below, we'll also have a deal there where you can just click on that and head right over there to listen to the full episode. I'd like to thank Chad Riker at the Backcountry Rookies podcast for having me on. It was a lot of fun to talk about it, and I'm really excited about a podcast and a group of guys like Chad and his buddies that put on this show, getting interested in muzzle loaders and wanting to share muzzle loading with what I could argue, I think you could say were you know really modern hunters and modern big game hunters. So I look forward to seeing more people out there with their muzzle loaders, trying out muzzle loading and giving that a shot. As always, thank you so much for listening. We've got a few more episodes in the queue here as we head towards spring. So be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast if you want to hear from those. We're going to be heading into our spring and summer event season here very quickly. So the videos are going to change up. The interviews are going to change up a little bit as we schedule more in-person conversations and things. So I hope you'll be along for the ride. Thank you so much for listening.